Well, good morning. I'm a, I'm a big reader, and one of my favorite fiction series, well, actually two of my favorite fiction series, are The Chronicles of Narnia and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, these have now been made into to movies in the 21st century, but in the 20th century, these were two of the best-selling fiction series. They sold millions upon millions upon millions of copies. And while a lot of us have seen the movies or we know the stories, many of us don't know the stories behind the stories. And, and, and the true story behind these stories is that, that there are two authors, C.S. Lewis here on the left and J.R.R. Tolkien on the right, were great friends. They were extremely close. And even as they wrote two of the most successful fiction series of the 20th century, they were friends. They were spending a tremendous amount of time together. And they were actually part of a small group known as the Inklings. The Inklings was a group of about 19 men who met in this pub. This is the actual pub and corner. I'm not sure they had plastic bottles of Heinz ketchup then, but, but, but this was the pub that they met in, and they even have some, some you know, memorials right here to them. It says C.S. Lewis right there. And this was the place that for 17 years, once or twice a week, C.S. Lewis J.R.R. Tolkien and their other writing friends got together and encouraged one another as they wrote. I mean, think about it. How many times would they have met if they met every week, once or twice a week for 17 years? We're talking close to or over 1,000 times. And they came together and they encouraged one another. And and this group played a pivotal role, especially in the life of J.R.R. Tolkien, because in a particular season, he got stuck. Tolkien's first book, or at least his first successful book, is known as The Hobbit. And The Hobbit was, was wildly successful. It was wildly popular. And, and like any publishing company, his publisher called him back and said, Hey, write more. Make us more money. And, and so Tolkien sat down to write The Hobbit 2, because every great book has to have a sequel. And he was terribly stuck. He didn't know what to write. He was frustrated and he was bogged down trying to figure out what to do. And so one night he came to that pub for a meeting of the Inklings and he was bemoaning how frustrated he was to his friend C.S. Lewis. And like a lot of us, C.S. Lewis said something to him that he seemed to think was no big deal. Many times in our lives, we just say something that's no big deal to somebody only to discover years later that those words changed their life. Or maybe somebody said something to you one time that they didn't think was a big deal, and you still remember it years later. Well, as he was bemoaning his state, C.S. Lewis said to J.R. Tolkien, he said these words. He says, the problem, J.R., is that the hobbits are only interesting when they're in unhobbit-like situations. Which isn't really that big of a deal. It's just like, hey, your hobbits are pretty boring in the Shire, but when they leave the Shire, things get interesting. And if you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, you know the story only starts in the Shire. And when Frodo gets the ring and he leaves and goes to take it to Mordor, the story gets really interesting. And so Tolkien took these words and he went home and he tore up what he'd written and he started writing The Lord of the Rings. And he has taken millions of people on an epic journey. This is the power of friendship. That we cannot do what we were meant to do alone. And reflecting on this later, C.S. Lewis said, The next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. 
So if you don't think that you have all the answers and you don't feel like you have life figured out and you don't feel like you're a wise person, then the next best thing for you to do is to surround yourself with people who are smarter and wiser than you are. In some ways here, Lewis is, is paraphrasing words from the Bible. The writer of Proverbs in chapter, chapter 13, verse 20, said these words. He says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So if you want to become the kind of person who is wise and avoids harm, one of the best things for you to do is to choose well the people you surround yourself with. Starting last week, we began this series called More. As the year begins and we think about what we want in this new year, we're we're reflecting on the more that we want in our life with God. The faith that we've always wanted but never been able to achieve and the places where we want to be closer to him. And last week we talked about the power of encountering Jesus and taking the step he puts in front of us, even if that isn't the step that we expected. Today we're going to talk about another piece of that journey to more, and that piece is relationships. And here's the main idea of the message. If you have a, a handout in your bulletin, I'd encourage you to pull it out and, and take some notes this morning. But the main idea of this message is this, is that outside of the Bible relationships are the primary method God uses to transform us. That outside of the scriptures, outside of reading the Bible and engaging with it, the primary tool that God uses in our lives to make us more like him are our relationships. And many of the best things in life and the most difficult things in life all come connected to relationships. And as we move forward today, I want to talk about a myth that I think a lot of us have bought into. It's a myth that's popular in our culture and world today, and it's this myth of me and Jesus. Many of us have bought into this idea that we can experience the more that God has for us with just Jesus and us. That we can just follow him by ourselves and become everything he wants for us to be and we go, I'm not sure necessarily even I need to be involved in a church. I'm not sure I even need to, to make significant friends at that church because I have Jesus and I have my Bible and I'm set. And that's a myth. And if you were to spend time with the people whose names fill the pages of this book and you were to describe to them this common American individualistic me and Jesus idea, they would look at you like you had four eyes or three heads. Because there's no place in this book for just you and Jesus skipping down the path as you become more like him. Throughout this book, there are reminders that we cannot become like him on our own. Over 50 times in the New Testament, we're commanded to one another, to love one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to be with one another, to carry one another, to forgive one another. And you can't fulfill any of those just you and Jesus. You need relationships with other people. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to unpack for you what I believe is the power of the relationships we have in our lives. And to do that, I want to use a guy who's well known in the Bible, whose name is Paul. Paul wrote over half of the New Testament, and he is the reason that all of us who are non-Jews are here today. Because he went to the church and said, is the gospel for those who aren't Jewish too? And in Acts 15, they made that decision, and Paul took the world by storm as he went and shared about Jesus. And so this morning, looking at Paul's life, I want to share with you about three relationships that Paul had and three significant 
products of those relationships, what those relationships led to in his life and what they can lead to in ours. And the first product of significant relationships in our lives is that these relationships provide encouragement. When you have significant relationships like we're going to look at Paul today and like Lewis and Tolkien had, they provide encouragement for you in the moments and the places where you get discouraged. And in the life of Paul, he had one of those moments. Paul, if, if you don't know, I don't know any other word to describe him other than that he was a terrorist. He was a Jewish leader who was intent on killing Christians, and he stood there and watched as people threw rocks at a man named Stephen who was a, a follower of Jesus until Stephen died. He went about arresting and imprisoning and executing people who followed Jesus, which in my mind fits the definition of a terrorist. And one day, as recorded in Acts 9, he's walking along the road, minding his own business, doing his terrorism thing, when Jesus encounters him on the road to Damascus and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Not persecuting my followers, why are you persecuting me? And because of that encounter, Paul and the world was never the same. Paul went blind and later had his sight restored, and, and he went to Jerusalem to have his his conversion confirmed because when the the most dangerous terrorist against the church becomes a follower, people are skeptical and for good reason. And we meet Paul in Acts chapter 9 in Jerusalem as he's taking the world by storm. In verse 26, Acts 9 reads that Paul went in and out among them in Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. These were Greek Jews but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers, these are the fellow Christians, learned that the Hellenists were going to kill him, they brought him down to Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean Sea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. That's Paul's hometown. They sent him away so that he'd be safe. And we don't know how long passes in terms of time here. It could be months. It was likely years. And then a man named Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement, he finds a time where he needs Paul in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, it reads that when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God on the believers in Antioch, he was glad, and he remained and exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now you may not understand the significance of what I just read, so let me just explain it for you. When everything you've given your life to and everything you've done and everything that's made you feel like you had a purpose and significance is taken away from you, it is very easy to become insecure. And to wonder if you still have value. Some of you know this because you've retired. So everything you did that you felt like gave you value and worth, you no longer go and do anymore. And you wonder, do I matter? Or maybe because of health reasons or other reasons, everything that you've done that was a part of your identity is taken away and you're stuck just sitting there. Wondering, what do I do and who I am? And this is Paul. Paul is taught 
and he's preached first Judaism, now Christianity, and now it's become dangerous. It's become even life-threatening for him to do that. So he goes off to Tarsus, and we don't know how long he's in Tarsus. And I have to tell you that if I was like Paul and I was sent back home without the ability to do what I'd always done, I'd be in a pretty dark place. We don't know how long he was there for. Jesus, I thought you were going to use me and now you've sent me back home. And if you've ever gone back home after you've gone through a massive transformation in yourself, you know how hard that is. Because everybody there is like, oh, you're little Paul still. And you're like, no, that's not who I am anymore. And Barnabas, being the encouraging guy that he is, gets to Antioch and sees that he needs Paul and those people need Paul and Paul needs those people. And so he goes and gets Paul and says, hey, God is not done with you yet. In fact, he's only getting started. And he brings Paul there and he says, this is what God is going to use you to do. And it's in Antioch that people first call followers of Jesus Christians because they look like Jesus. Paul's relationship with Barnabas is what I call a providential relationship. It's the combination of the right person at the right time for the right purpose. I believe God brings the right people in our lives at the right time for the right purpose as an act of his providence. And we look back on those relationships and those encounters for years to come. Because those people, they're Work speaks directly to needs that we have. God knows that we have a need, and they discover that, they have, that we have a need, and God uses them in a particular time, in a particular place, to encourage us. Maybe you can remember somebody noticing that you were having a hard season, putting a hand on your shoulder and saying, hey, are you okay? Maybe, maybe you have somebody who picked up a phone one day and called you and said, I don't know why I'm calling you, but I just have this urge, are, are you Okay. Maybe you encountered somebody who taught you something or helped you take a step or who was an agent of healing in your life where you've been wounded. Those are all providential relationships. And the reason why God uses providential relationships in our lives is that none of us are over-encouraged. I've never met a person who's over-encouraged. It's like, I'm good. I got enough encouragement to last me a while, Scott. Everybody I meet needs encouragement, including myself. And it even happened this week. On Monday night, uh, our board was having a meeting, and uh, my wife and I were kind of crossing paths. I picked up the kids from school and preschool. I was handing them off to her. I was going to grab a bite to eat. I said, hey, I'll make, I'll make tonight easy. I'll call in an order for pizza while you're driving home. That way you can grab it on the way, and your night will be easy because you have all the kids by yourself. So I, I leave. She leaves. I go get a bite to eat. I'm literally pulling in the parking lot, and my phone rings. And I pull it out, and I see my wife, and my first thought was, I didn't order the pizza. <laughs> and so I didn't answer with hello or hi or I love you. I answered with I'm sorry. And she goes, you didn't order the pizza, did you? And I said, no, I didn't. And uh, she goes, okay, well, we'll be patient. And so she, you know, is at the pizza place standing there with no pizza. And so she orders it. And, and, I'm, and I'm in a meeting for like the next 20 minutes. And I don't even know what we talked about. Because um, I'm just beating myself up. Because I'm like, you're a terrible husband. Like, you're an idiot. Like, all you had to do was speed dial the pizza place, which already has your, your order on file. I mean, it takes like 30 seconds. And I couldn't even remember to do it. And I'm just sitting there going, man, I am a, I'm a terrible husband. I'm, she's there by herself having the kids after a long day at work, and I'm here. And I'm just. And all of a sudden, my phone goes off, and she texts me. And she says, hey, um, I want you to know this is okay. Stop beating yourself up. 
Because she knows. She knows how I am. She knows what I was doing. And this is why you have to have significant relationships in your life where people know what your weaknesses are so they can encourage those weaknesses. Because what you need only comes through somebody who knows what you need. And the reason my wife could read my mind is because we've been in that kind of honest, transparent relationship for over 10 years. And she's watched me do this again and again. And so she can preempt it. And here's what you need to know. That you need an encourager in your life. And if you don't have one, then you need to be one for other people. Because in the process of you encouraging them, I believe you will find the encouragement you need. One of the, the most quoted verses about the significance of what we're doing right now is Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25, where the writer of Hebrews says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You're not just here because you need to hear what I have to say. You're here because you need to be next to the people you're next to because without that encouragement, you're not going to take the steps you need to take. And there is significance to what we're doing here. And the, the, the way I see it is this, that, that there is a consequence to you not having these kind of relationships in your life. And that consequence is this, that you're much easier to defeat when you're isolated. You are so much easier for our enemy, Satan, to attack if you don't have relationships around you. And in 1 Peter, Peter says that, that, the, that the devil is like a roaring lion praying around looking for someone to devour. And I've watched enough Animal Planet to know that lions attack weak isolated animals. They don't attack strong herds. So you need encouragement, not just so that you can take the steps you need to take this year, but because without that, you're going to be vulnerable. That's the first thing that significant relationships do. They provide encouragement. The second thing they do is they empower someone to say no. Significant relationships empower someone to say no. In the life of Paul, he had a relationship with a guy named Peter who was a follower of Jesus. And in the book of Galatians, which we studied last summer as a church in a series called Jesus Plus Nothing, Paul and Peter go at it because Paul sees Peter doing something that is inconsistent with who he knows Peter to be. And it comes around this idea of grace and truth and legalism and circumcision. In Galatians 2, Paul writes, but when Cephas, and that's another word for Peter, came to Antioch, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He says, for certain men came from James and Peter was eating with the Gentiles before those men came. He says, but when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing the group that everybody should be circumcised. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, the good guy from earlier, was led astray by their hypocrisy. And Paul writes, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
So Paul is saying to Peter, look, when, when these people aren't around, you act one way, but when they're here, you're afraid of them and you act differently. That's hypocrisy, Peter. And you're better than that. And not only are you better than that, you have influence. And because you're doing this, other people are going along with this lie too. And you don't recognize the influence and impact that you're having. And so I'm your friend, and so I love you enough to tell you the truth that you got to stop this. This is not okay. See, Paul loved Peter enough to call him out. Now, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say Paul loved calling him out. Because there are some people in the world that just love calling people out, and that's called selfishness. If you just love calling people out, that isn't about your love for the other person. That's about your love for yourself. I get nervous every time I call somebody out. And that's how I know I'm doing the right thing. If I'm not nervous, I stop because I say this is about me, not them. But if you're nervous, it's because you love them enough and you know that if you call them out, this could go badly. And you choose to do it anyway. See, Paul loved Peter and Paul knew that he needed someone in his life who was empowered to call him out. And so my question for you is, who have you empowered to say no in your life? Who in your life do you have the trust and relationship with that they have the permission to tell you no? No, you can't do that. No, that's, that's, that's not okay. No, that's not actually who you are. No, that's hypocrisy. And I'm not going to let you keep doing that. See, my conviction is, is that that list for a lot of us is extremely short if it's actually present. For most of us, it's non-existent. There's no one who feels like they have the power to tell us no. And there are reasons for that. One of the reasons for that is baggage. A lot of us have baggage from our past relationships that's unresolved, and so it's defining our current relationships. Somebody in the past hurt you when they tried to call you out, and so now you're not going to let anybody ever call you out ever again. What that means is that you're going to do dumb, stupid stuff, and no one can tell you no. And you got to deal with that baggage. Because if your past is still affecting your present, it isn't your past. The second thing I think causes us to get hung up and not deal with this is we go, I don't have the time, Scott. I'm just too busy. We wear busy as a badge of honor in our culture. But if you don't have the time to create these kind of relationships, then when you need those kind of relationships, you won't have them. So you have to decide when you don't need those kind of friendships that you will build those friendships. It's like, it's like retirement. You don't decide to save when you need the money. You decide to save when you don't need the money so that it's there when you need it. It's the same with relationships. People tell me, I don't have time to be in a small group, Scott. Well, when shipwreck happens in your life, because it will happen for all of us, it's going to go very badly for you because you won't have people there with you. Some of us, it's fear. We're afraid. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be hurt. What, what, if, what if I give them permission and they abuse it? What if I tell them something and they share it? We're, we're driven by fear. And others of us, we're, we're driven by perfectionism. 
We're looking for the perfect friend, the perfect relationship, the perfect small group. People fill out cards here at Cornerstone sometimes, and, and, and I can just tell by looking at the card they're looking for a perfect small group. Because they say, I'm looking for a group, but it can only meet on Tuesdays at 6 p.m., and this is who can be in the group, and it's got to be within five minutes walking distance of my house. <laughs> or you get, you get on the phone with a person and start talking, and they're talking about the group they used to be a part of in the church they used to be in. And they're forcing the people here to fit their past experience. And, and if you're expecting clones of the people you used to know here, you're going to be disappointed. See, we create all these excuses that prevent us from experiencing the relationships we need. And I actually, I've, I'm, in a, I'm on a, a campaign. I want to take back a word that I think has been lost in our culture. And it's the word accountability. Because I think we threw it away a long time ago. Because we've been hurt by it. And here's what I've discovered. I've discovered that healthy accountability cannot be imposed. It can only be invited. So if I come into your life and I go, hey, I'm going to hold you accountable, you're like, excuse me? Who made you God? But if I come to you and say, hey, this is something I really want to do. This really matters to me and I need help. Would you be willing to help me with that? That is an entirely different conversation. And that's the kind of relationship that Paul and Peter had. Peter had invited this kind of accountability by being a leader in the church, by his friendship with Paul when they met back in Acts 9. And so when Paul confronted him, it was permission granted. It wasn't imposed. I will say, though, before I go on, that you have to be wise who you let into that level because there are people you do not want holding you accountable who aren't trustworthy, who will abuse it, even people within the church. So be wise. One of the quotes that I use in my life that, that just brings me back to center, and it involves the word leader, but where it says leader, I just want you to translate people or Christians, is this. Andy Stanley said that leaders who don't listen will eventually be surrounded by people who have nothing to say. And I want to be the kind of leader who's surrounded by people who have something to say. And so it's incumbent on me to listen today. The final product of significant relationships is this, is that they help us take our next step towards Jesus. Significant relationships help us take our next step towards Jesus. And we see this in the life of the man who it seems that Paul invested the most in, a man named Timothy. Paul's final of his 13 letters is the book of 2 Timothy, and he writes it to his disciple, Timothy. And he says these words. He says, I thank God, Timothy, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clean conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So Paul's saying, hey, this didn't start with me. It started with your grandmother and your mother, and then I came in, and we were all a part of this. And he says, so for this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Over the last couple weeks, what will happen right now, we've been sharing with you testimonies. 
people whose life story has been transformed by Jesus. And one of the things I've learned is that every person's testimony involves other people. I know it's not a a, a profound revelation, but I want you to think about it. You've never heard somebody share their testimony that involved them in a desert with a Bible and no one else. Every person's testimony of coming to faith in Christ, of, of seeing God work in their life, it always involved another person. Even in the scriptures, we see that, that every person who comes to Christ, it's through the work of another person. This is why in the beginning I said that outside of the Bible, relationships are the primary method God uses to transform us. Because when we look back on our life, we don't just see the Bible and a church service and Jesus. We see person after person after person that God used in our life. And so if you're not building healthy, significant relationships with other people, you're not going to be transformed. No matter how many hours you spend in this book. And Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you didn't just go to seminary and grow in your faith. It was your grandmother and your mother and me that have helped you grow up into the place where he took Paul's spot. And Lewis says this in reflecting on his relationship with his friend J.R. Tolkien and his buddies, the Inklings. He says, no human being can bring out all of another person. It takes a whole circle of human beings, a community, to extract the real you. In each of my friends, he says, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call, to, to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. So it's not even that you need a best friend. You need a community of friends to bring out all the pieces that God put in you. And and Lewis wrote this after one of the friends in the Inklings died. And he goes on to say that there's a part of me and a part of us that we will never see again. Because only that person brought it out. That is the power of significant relationships. And God uses them in our life to make us more like Jesus. I want to give you a real visual example of what this looks like this morning. And so I'm going to invite my friend Emily to the stage to share a little bit of her story with us. Will you give her a round of applause as she comes? Do you need the Kleenex? Uh, I okay. hope not. Okay, good. I'm not a choir. <laughs> well, Emily, um, we, uh, we're rather close friends. You and my wife are very close. And um, uh, this week, uh, we were talking with the team about this message and this uh, opportunity to have somebody share their story. And one of our team members said, I think you should interview Emily. And uh, I called you this week. I think you had all your kids in the car. It was a little bit loud in the background. And uh, I started talking to you about this message. And, and this idea of being vulnerable and transparent, letting people in, is, has not always been something that's been easy for you because of some stuff that happened in your past. Is that correct? Correct. Um, I spent the first five years of my life in, an orf- in orphanages overseas. 
um, where I was malnourished and neglected. And then at five, I was put on an airplane, sent across halfway across the world to a place I'd never even knew existed, um, to people that I had never met, um, and those two people became my parents. Um, they were not Christians um, and had a very tumultuous relationship, and eventually at nine in, entered into a very ugly, bitter divorce um, where I was stuck in the crossfire of all that. Of all of that. Um, by the time that I was 12, uh, my dad, my adoptive dad, unknown to, uh, not, not due to any fault of my own, um, had just outright rejected me. And he had made very clear to me that um, not only was I a mistake, um, but that I was absolutely unwanted. Um, and so as a result of all of this, um, that I had certainly felt very rejected and um, had um, developed some walls to protect myself um, from getting hurt again. And I had a very tainted lens of who I was and um, truly did believe that I was a, an insignificant human being who was not worthy of being loved. Somehow, though, in the midst of all of that, um, you were raised in this tumultuous, non-Christian family. You ended up at a Christian college. Yes. Um, and, I mean, in long story short, that, um, that I was not a Christian when I went to a, the Christian college. Um, and ultimately, through being there, um, and obviously through God, um, that I eventually accepted Christ um, while I was in college. Um, and ultimately met my, or I, actually my husband, we, in, we met in high school, um, but we started dating when I was in college um, and got married um, and eventually had a family and moved back to Prescott. Um, but in the midst of all that move and coming back here, um, you began to recognize that, that this, these walls you'd built didn't work anymore. The system of keeping people at arm's distance was not a good thing. Yes. Um, I started, we, my family started coming to Cornerstone approximately six years ago. Um, and three years ago, we were invited to um, join the Bundys home group, uh, which eventually transitioned into the Richards home group. Um, and about two years ago, um, I had some fairly significant life circumstances that hit me. Um, and also during that time um, that some of these relationships were developing. And so um, because I was fairly entrenched in this home group um, and also at this church at that time, um, that one of the, the one of the ladies here at this church had actually reached out to me and said, "Hey, I want to I want to get have a relationship with you. I want to do a Bible study." And um, the initial me said, "Oh heck no, we're not doing this. Um, I'm not going there." Um, but um, through that, um, eventually that I did um, do that as well as through a home group, um, that these ladies and these people that truly did care about me um, just kind of surrounded me through that experience um, and encouraged me and held me accountable um, and ultimately um, transformed my lens um, and actually showed me that that lens was damaged um, and that it was um, not what who God saw me as. Um, and so it changed my, it ch ultimately transformed my relationship with God. Um, but it wasn't easy and it certainly, um, it, was, it was a choice on my part because I did have to surrender to knowing that God wanted me to have these relationships um, but not wanting to have them and not wanting to open myself up to these people. Um, but in their various ways um, that they, uh, you know, one, one person every time, because I was really good at withdrawing, um, very good at it. I had become a master at it, actually. Um, so when um, these circumstances hit, that I immediately wanted to withdraw and isolate myself. Um, and one of the ladies in the, my home group 
um, every time she sensed that, would reach out to me and say, hey, what's going on? I kind of, you know, feel this happening. Um, and so it just held, held me accountable to that. Um, another lady, um, for a lack of a better word, I had done, I was a master at building these walls. And she just exploded through the walls, bulldozed them down and said, <laughs> I don't care if, um, ultimately just said, you, you may not want to have a relationship with me, but I know that you're wor- worth having a relationship with. Um, and so um, this, the home group and these people, uh, this community had just um, ultimately challenged me, um, but loved me and transformed that view that I had of myself. Um, and it did ultimately transform my relationship with God. Well, I want to thank you um, on, on numerous occasions since our family moved here 18 months ago. Um, and I didn't know all this background until like Thursday. Um, and it, it's, it's so surprising because um, for my family, uh, especially my wife, you have been that. Um, and for somebody who is such a huge hang-up for, um, and it was a hang-up for, I'm so proud of how far you've come because um, your reputation in my household is you're a, a trustworthy, safe person who when stuff goes down, you show up. And so I think that's a testimony to this group and to God's grace that that's who you are today. And we want to celebrate that. So do you want to just thank Emily for sharing this morning? Thank you very much. So I want to share with you some next steps that you can take in light of what you've heard today. And, and the first step that I want to challenge you with, and you may see this coming, is that this morning we want to challenge you that if you're not involved in one of our community groups like Emily is, that's a step you need to take. Um, one of the things that I've become con- convinced of through real personal experience is just coming on Sunday is not enough. If you just come on Sunday and have a good experience and like the music and put up with the preaching, um, you're not going to stay in this church for very long. Um, And if stuff happens in your life and stuff goes down, uh, you're not going to have anybody to call. You'll call the office and we'll do the best that we can, but it'll be very different than if you have a community of people like Emily's just described who are walking with you through life. And, And at Cornerstone, our discipleship, our community, everything of our strategy to help you become like Jesus comes through community groups. And, and those six, those groups have really six kind of values or markers that drive our groups. The first one is that they're sermon-based. Our groups meet together and they walk through the stuff I've talked about because there are so many places that, that I didn't get a chance to go in a 35-minute message today that you can get into in a small group. There's places in those texts, there's places in application that I just can't get to in the time that we have, but you can in your group. And that's why we do sermon-based. Number two, they're, they're application-oriented. As I said last week, we have a bias as a church, and we think it's a good bias, that we have a bias towards application, that, that everything we do is to see each other apply God's word to our life. And so our groups aren't about giving you more knowledge. Our groups are about moving you towards application. Number three, they're discussion-driven. So the group is not to be a place where one person teaches for 45 minutes. You've already heard master or group teaching, we want to now talk about discussion and give you a place to share. Number four, our groups are a place of grace and truth. Like Emily just described, you can come as you are and be loved there, but those people love you enough to help you become everything you're supposed to be. And they're going to walk that line between grace and truth. Number five, our groups are are reproducing. Some of you have been in a group in Cornerstone for some time and you're like, okay, awesome. I, I got number one set. Well, the challenge for you this year is, are you really plugged into your group? Are you present? Will you be there? 
And then number two, have you been a part of a group for so long that you need to go out and create that space for someone else? 40% of our attendees here at Cornerstone, 43% actually, are involved in a community group. Over 200 people each week meet in homes. That's awesome. But last Sunday, we had 576 people here. And what that means is that we need more space so that those other 376 people can discover what those 200 already know. And if you're in a group and you love it and you're safe and you're comfortable, then I'm here today with a little bit of courage to tell you that you can stay safe and comfortable, but you will not give someone the space to discover what you've discovered. And I think it's bad that you got here two months first and so you get to, you get to experience it, but because they came two weeks or two months later, they don't. And so our groups are committed to be reproducing groups. Number six, they're missional. They exist for a purpose bigger than themselves and each group does that in different ways. So if you got a bulletin when you walked in, there's a connection card on your bulletin. And at the bottom, it says, get involved. There's a place where you can indicate that you want to join a community group and you can give us some information about what your particularities are. People your age, childcare, some nights of the week that work for you. And in a little bit, we're going to collect the offering so that you can pass that card in if you want to get involved or you can go to the lobby. So the first step is join a group. Number two, I want to challenge you to initiate a DTR talk. That stands for define the relationship with a friend. When I was in college, these were the kind, of relation, the kind of relationship talks that happened between a guy and a girl when one liked the other. You'd do a little walk around our campus and talk about what kind of relationship you wanted to have, and it either ended well or ended badly, and I was on this, both sides. Um, I think that we have friendships that are capable of going to the level I've talked about today, but we've just not said we wanted it to. Guys in the room, I think our biggest challenge is that we've got tons of friends, but nobody really knows us. Most men I know have lots of friends, but those friendships are all about this deep. We don't let people in. We've got stuff going on inside here, we don't talk about it. And our wives are sitting there praying every night that we would develop close friends. And some of us have friends that need to go to another level. And so I didn't challenge you this week to have a conversation and say, hey, I know we've been friends, but I would love to be able to trust you more. I'd love to be able to share more. That's not feminine. That's healthy, mature humanity. And ladies, I think a lot of us have great girlfriends that we share everything with. I just think we've got rela- you have relationships a lot of times where they, you, you don't tell them, they can tell you no. It's... What happens in this room stays in this room. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's all authenticity and no accountability. You don't call each other out. And so I'd encourage you to have a DTR talk this week. And then number three, I want to challenge you to stop trying to follow Jesus solo. So many of us have bought into that me and Jesus myth, and it's keeping us from the more he wants from us. Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine. And here's my conviction, that if Jesus needed 12 disciples, you and I need at least a few good friends. And so this week, I want to challenge you to build significant relationships. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the ways that you use relationships in our life. We thank you for Emily's story, that there were people who, when she pulled away, they reached out. We thank you for the people who kept showing up when she was going through that season of crisis and were there for her. 
and broke through those walls and said, I know that you're afraid to trust and I know you don't feel like you have worth and value, but I believe you do. And God, those people were instruments of your grace. You used them to make Emily more like Jesus. And in each of our lives, we need those kind of friends and we need to be those kind of friends. God, thank you for the examples we see all throughout Scripture that you intend to make us like Jesus and you desire to use people to that end. And so in the places where we have baggage or fear, where we're making excuses about busyness, we pray that you would put our excuses right in front of our face and that we deal with them so that we can experience everything you have for us. We not only thank you for good friends, we thank you for your grace, we thank you for your greatness, and we pray that you would transform us to be everything you long for us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.